Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to see some familiar faces. Last week I said some old faces, and what I meant was we had known each other for some time. I didn't mean old. Some people were offended by that. It's good to see some familiar faces. And uh, good to see some visitors also this morning. I just want to, to reiterate what Jeremy said. If you are here and I don't know who you are, you don't know who I am, I would love to meet you after service and get to know you and answer any questions you may have uh, and know better how we can serve you, know better how we can help you as you seek to grow uh, in Christ-likeness. We are in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 1. We have been spending the last couple of months, as Jeremy said, on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. So I'm going to ask you to join me in standing in honor of the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I hope you've been memorizing. Truthfully, I can see nothing else right now besides Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It has been burned into my brain. Uh, it is hard to, it's hard to say it. It's hard to memorize it or to uh, quote it together because everybody's at different places and you're listening to other people say it. But I hope that you have been memorizing and I hope that it's been a help to you. I know that has if you've been doing that work. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Please follow along there as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, for the last two months, two months, we have been considering one sentence. In your English translation, it's several sentences, but in the Greek, the original language, it's one sentence. We've been considering that for two months. This one sentence located here at the beginning of the Apostle Paul's letter to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. However, it is clear that the intent of Paul's Sentence: The intent of Paul's letter is not just for those believers at Ephesus, but it is meant to go to all of those who are in Christ. All believers, for all time, should treasure the truth of this letter. 
this sentence. And that is why we wanted to focus on the opening blessing and encourage you to memorize it. In fact, the, the, I, don't, I don't know if there are too many more passages that would be more important for you to memorize uh, than Ephesians 1, 3-14. This magisterial sentence has as its aim, its goal, the praise of God, the triune God. Paul invites all believers for all time who are in Christ to praise God. Why? Because, as we've discovered, this end, the praise and glory of God, this is what God has intended by all that he has done. God the Father's purpose in all that he has done is to glorify himself. Let us not move past that too quickly. Let's don't move past that without reflecting on it for a moment. Paul calls, the Apostle Paul calls all believers to praise God because this is exactly what God wants. Have you ever struggled to find or to consider the will of God? Have you ever thought, have you ever as an individual thought, I wonder what God's will is? Well, here is the sum of God's will. To glorify himself. God wants the praise and the glory. Because indeed, he is owed the praise and glory. He is God. And this honor as God, recognizing him as God, is exactly what mankind refuses to give him. This is what Romans 1 tells us. Are you familiar with the passage in Romans 1? Mankind, whom God has created, mankind is under his wrath, the wrath of God, because they will not honor him as God or give him thanks, but instead exchange the glory of the immortal God for the worship of creeping things, beasts, the creation itself. And so we see the heart of this sentence that we are reflecting upon for the last two months. This sentence is to call us to praise the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And not only call us to that, but inform us now that we can indeed give him praise and honor and glory as we were intended. We can Praise God truly because we are no longer children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No, God has made us alive in Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now we should glorify God because we have been joined with Christ. This work of God to glorify himself has been centered on his son. This plan, this eternal plan to glorify himself is centered on his son and this plan is the plan that encapsulates all of history. What is the purpose of all history? 
Have you ever stopped and considered this? This is what this, this passage is telling us. What is the purpose of all of history? The purpose of all history is for God to glorify himself in the person of his son. That is what all of history is about. Now this is explicitly stated when it says that according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus Christ is the one to whom all things in heaven and earth are aimed. He is the sum of all that has been made. And get this. This realization, this realization that Jesus Christ is the center of all of history, that he stands unparalleled, he stands preeminent as the center and the aim of God's glory for all of history. This reality is not given to everyone. This realization, this revelation, this truth is not given to everyone. That's what Jeremy a few weeks ago talked about. The revelation, the wisdom and insight into this reality that God has centered all of his plan, his eternal plan on his son, Jesus. The wisdom and insight into this reality is the gracious gift of the Father to those whom he has sovereignly chosen to reveal it. In other words, we can gather, this is, this is the practical implication here, we can gather this morning and sing the glories of Christ. Did you enjoy singing the truths of Christ this morning, the truths of the gospel this morning? We can gather together as his church and sing these truths regarding Christ and believe with all our heart that Jesus Christ is the one through whom everything was made and for whom everything was made. But we did not come upon this truth in and of ourselves. We did not stumble upon the knowledge of this in any effort of our own. We came to this knowledge by his grace, which he lavished upon us. He lavished his grace upon us in the revelation of the knowledge of him. We did not stumble upon this truth ourselves, and we don't love and treasure this truth on our own. Get get what I'm saying here. When you were singing... When you were singing the truths of who God is and who Christ is, you were singing those truths and, and your heart was, was resonating with those truths and you were saying, yes, yes, this is true. You, you, you did not come to that love for the truth in and of yourself. He gave it to you. He gave you that love. He gave you that treasuring of the truth. He gave that to you as a gift. This lavish grace of wisdom and insight into the grand and glorious purposes of God are bestowed upon his people, a particular people. Only God's people can sing his praises. A people of his own choosing, so we see. And this is what Paul is communicating to us. This is what Paul is saying to us. 
He is calling us to give God praise, not only because he is worthy and due our praise, but because we are the recipients of his particular grace. We are his people. We have been made his people, not by anything we have done, but completely and totally by his work. Truly, if we walk away from this sentence, Ephesians 1, 3-14, if we walk away from this passage, thinking that the point of it is merely to recite all of the benefits given to us in salvation, then we miss the point. The point of this sentence isn't just to tell us all the things we get in Christ. No, all of those blessings we receive in Christ are a springboard for praise. The point of the passage is, look at God and praise Him for who He is and what He has done. The triune God. Praise Him. He initiates, He works, and He is the one do all the praise. As the painter envisions the painting and plans what he is going to paint. As the painter initiates the work and paints upon the canvas, he carries out the work and it is all his work. They are all his brush strokes. And when the painter is done, we praise the one who created it. It is, from beginning to end, all his work. This is salvation. It has been initiated and planned by God, carried out by God, and he is the one who receives all praise for it. And you know, when we step back and look at the painting, when we step back and look at what he has done, it is not a portrait of us. It is, not, it is not us that is the focal point. It is his son. His son to whom we have been joined. So the truths set before us this morning are nothing short of the most significant transformational Reality shaping truths that we could consider. And it's now to this sentence. We again turn our attention in verse 11 through 14. We come to the conclusion of this wonderful sentence. Starting there, I'm going to read again verse 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This passage teaches us, this section teaches us, that those of us who are in Christ have been given an inheritance. We considered part of this last week. Now it is important, and I don't remember if I mentioned this last week or not. I think I did, but I can't remember. It's important to realize that the word for 
inheritance is not actually there at the beginning of the verse. You see that in verse 11? The word translated, obtained an inheritance, is actually a word that means to be appointed by lot or to be apportioned by lot. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Biblically, I think you have a reference here to the giving of land to Israel. Israel was given an inheritance, and they were given that inheritance by lot. See Joshua 18 and following. They were, they were given the inheritance by lot. By lot, again, they would draw out of a bag, a stone, or, or some object that would indicate what piece of land they were to have. That is how they were given the land. Now in contrast to that, it says we have an inheritance not given by lot, but what? Based upon the predestinating work of God. He predestined us. He gave us an inheritance not by lot, but by predestination having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has now given us an inheritance, not by law, but according to his sovereign purpose. Notice the terms highlighting in that section. Again, we look, looked at this last week, but look, look at the terms highlighting God's sovereignty piled upon one another in that statement. Predestined according to his purpose, works all things according to the counsel of his will. It would be enough to say that he predestined us. That would, that would suffice. But he predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not a more succinct, powerful statement of God's sovereignty can be found. And God's desire is for you to come to trust and love and embrace and find comfort in his sovereign power. The sovereignty of God is meant to encourage us. It is meant to comfort us. He doesn't ask you to be in his place and understand what he alone can understand. Have you ever struggled with the, with the truths of sovereignty? Have you, ever, have you ever struggled with those truths? I was encouraging students at, at Moody Aviation this past week in theology class. I was encouraging them. You don't have to understand all of the interconnectedness in the mind of God. You don't have to understand all that. All we are held responsible for is what God's word says. And it clearly says that he is sovereign over salvation. And this is meant to comfort us. We simply believe it, embrace it. And God wants us to come to trust it and love it and relish the truths of God's sovereignty. He doesn't ask us to be in his place. He doesn't ask us to understand all the ways that it works. All he wants us to do is revel in the truth of it to the praise of his glory. What an amount of pressure that takes off of us. You mean I don't have to figure it out? No, he just wants you to trust what he has said to be true. There's great comfort there for the believer. Now this morning I would like for us to consider the identity 
of those whom God has sovereignly chosen. As I said, he has lavished his grace upon a particular group of people. He has, by his grace, given a people wisdom and insight into what his plan and purpose for all of time is. Who are these people that he has sovereignly chosen and lavished wisdom and insight upon, given his revelation? Who are these people? Here's the main idea this morning. The Father has created a people from both Jew and Gentile by the word of his Son and has marked them by his Spirit until he takes them finally for his own. The Father has created a people from both Jew and Gentile by the word of his Son and has marked them by his Spirit until he takes them fully and finally for his own. First, I'd like for you to see that the passage here shows us that the people of God are one. The people of God are one. Now, throughout the sentence, throughout this sentence, starting in verse 3, all the way through verse 14, Paul has used the first person plural to communicate the blessings given to God's people. Look, look at it. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. All the way through, it's us, we. He's used this to communicate that we are all recipients of these blessings. But at verse 12, he goes from speaking to all believers generally to speaking about a particular group. Look at verse 12. He says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 12, So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ. There he gives a qualifying statement. The we in verse 12 is a subset of the we of verse 3 through 10. And the we he's referring to are those who were the first to hope in Christ. Or the first to hope in the Messiah. That's what Christ means. The we here in verse 12 is speaking, I think, very clearly of the Jewish people. Specifically, the believing Jewish people. Those who believed upon the Messiah. Those who were the first to believe upon Christ. And isn't this what Romans... It tells us, Romans 1.16, this, this verse that we all love. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Those who were the first to hope in Christ, I think, are clearly the Jewish people, the Jewish believers. Now, this distinction is further clarified by what he goes on to say in verse 13. Because in verse 13, it's the first time he uses the second person, plural. He says in verse 13, in him you also. So he distinguishes there. We, who were the first to hope in Christ, and you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So he makes a distinction there. The first to hope in the Messiah were the Jewish believers, and now you also have believed. And I don't think he's just talking about the believers at Ephesus. He makes the you clear in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. I mean, it's right there, so all you have to do is look across the page. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he says, you Gentiles. He, sa- he does the same thing in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. I think it's clear. The we, who were the first to open Christ, is talking about the Jewish believers. You also, who believed when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that's talking about Gentile believers. So what does Paul say? He's saying that Jewish believers and Gentile believers are one. And in fact, this is the, the theme, this is the center of what he goes on to say in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Ephesians. In fact, chapters 1 through 3 is this theological treatise, this theological masterpiece, and at the center of it is this reality that there is one people of God. There is one people of God. Not two peoples of God. I think there's some of that still lingering in our thinking. No, God has made Jew and Gentile both one in Christ. He's made one people of God. This is very important. And it is a staggering reality. It's a mystery, Paul says. This is something that couldn't have even been thought of before God reveals it to his people. The people of God are one people, both Jew and Gentile. Now, we, we could spend a lot more time on this, and we would have, have a lot of fun thinking about this and all the implications of this, but I want to just give you a few, okay? The fact that the church is comprised both of Jew and Gentile, that he has taken Jew and Gentile and made them one, that reality accomplishes several important works and implications for us. First, the church being comprised of Jew and Gentile serves to join the testaments together in one unified, coherent whole. Do you know there are still people that think that the Old Testament is for the Jewish people and the New Testament is for the, the, the church? Did you know that? There are some people that think the Old Testament 
is for the Jewish people. You know, that's good. It's not really applicable. It's not really for us. It's really, really, really interesting. There's a lot of great stories there, some illustrations, but it's not really about us or for us. And really, the Gospels, if you're going to go that far, the Gospels, eh, the Gospels are a lot of Old Testament. What we need to focus on is the epistles, the epistles of Paul. Kind of, kind of after the Gospels, that's where we need to live. No, the fact that Jew and Gentile are now one takes both Testaments and joins them together as one coherent, unified story that points to Jesus Christ. He is the point of all of it. The Testaments have been joined together in one unified, coherent whole, pointing to Christ, who, as we find out in chapter 2, Jesus is the cornerstone of the new temple being built for God's presence. Mankind, not just the Jewish people, but all of mankind, not just Israel, all of mankind will now dwell with God again because of what Christ has accomplished. The church being comprised of Jew and Gentile also testifies to the reconciling work of the cross. That's what chapter 2 says. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jew and Gentile were hostile to one another. That's actually what you see throughout the Old Testament. Jew and Gentile had no participation, no fellowship one with another. But in Christ, he has done away with that dividing wall of hostility and he has made two one. He has joined us together, speaking and pointing to the reconciling work of the cross he might reconcile us both. Look at, look at what verse 15 says. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. This reconciling work of the cross has taken two peoples and made them one. This, this has so many implications for the church today. Over the last few years, we have experienced a great amount of turmoil and debate and division over the issue of race in our country. I don't want to get into all of the societal implications of race and a, a, a revisioning or a revisiting of history and all of that, but I want to think about the church Man, this, is so, this has caused so much division in the church. There are some who want to ignore racism and, and uh, partiality present in the church and act like it doesn't exist. Well, I can tell you, by living in the southeast for a lot of years, it definitely exists. There are still many churches in the southeast that refuse to allow African American people into their congregation because they just don't belong here. Now, maybe you don't understand that reality. Maybe you don't see that reality because you live in Spokane, Washington, but that's still a reality in the United States of America. 
That's, that's true. That's real. There's no place in the church because of this truth. But on the other side, we have people in the church that they, they want to still make it an issue out of race and all they want to do is talk about race. Listen, we are not identified by our race. We are identified by being in Christ. That is who we are. And if we emphasize race to the point that we, we are divided, then we've missed the point. We are one in Christ, and this should have implications for how we approach what our society is working through with race issues. Listen, in the church, this is a place where we, we are joined in Christ by faith. We're not identified by our race, but being identified as, as in Christ. Now the church being comprised of Jew and Gentile points also to a day where all things will be summed up in Christ. Get this, the church, the unity, the union of the church, the Jew and Gentile, this, this, is, this is what comprises all of the earth, okay? Biblically, there are two groups of people. There are Jew and Gentile. That's all the earth, the fact that he has taken Jew and Gentile and joined them together means that he is unifying all things around himself. The unity of the church, the identity of the church as being comprised of both Jew and Gentile points to the future day where all things will be united in Christ. So think about this. The church is the living witness of where history is headed. That is who we are. We are the living, breathing witness of where everything is going. And we see that the church being comprised of both Jew and Gentile serves to exalt God and his glory and his wisdom even in the heavenly realms. Look at chapter 3. Can you do that? Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 6, he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, the partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, look at verse number 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he was, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church not only testifies to the reconciling work, the reconciling reality of the, of the work of the cross. Not only does it testify to the world of where all of history is headed, but it testifies, the church testifies to the heavenly realms, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. The church, united, speaks to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms of the wisdom, the glory of God. That is the purpose which we serve. So let me ask this. 
Is our unity important? Is our unity important? I hope that you can say, obviously, yes. Unity, our unity together in Christ is everything. How quickly we give that away for our individual preferences and our individual whims. The reality of this union between Jew and Gentile is central to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, what all that Paul is saying. And it will not be easy to live out. In fact, that's what he's going to do. Did you know that in the book of Ephesians, there's not an imperative? You won't find an imperative in the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's all theological. And at the center of that theology that Paul's giving us is this reality of being joined with Christ. And, and a major theme of that is the fact that he's taken both Jew and Gentile and made them one in Christ. That's the theology he's pre- presenting to us. And he knows it's not going to be easy. That's why he prays at the end of chapter 3. Right? What does he pray at the end of chapter 3? He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. He says, I want you to have strength to do what? To comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? A lot of people think that's talking about his love. No, no, not really. What it's talking about, think about it, it's, these are architectural terms. Architectural terms. And he just talked about us being joined together as a holy temple for the presence of God. And he says, I want you to get, I want you to understand what is the height and the breadth and the length and the depth. I want you to see what God is building. And I want you to be strengthened by his love so that you can comprehend with all the saints what he is building. That's what he wants you to see. And he doesn't give any imperatives until chapter 4. And what does he tell us in chapter 4? He starts, chapter 4 through 6, he just gives us all imperatives, right? What does he start with in chapter 4? He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what he wants us to do. That's what he wants us to do as a church. The church is not a place where we just come and receive. The church is a place where we gather as God's people, actively, eagerly, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And it is hard. It is difficult. It is not easy. And that's why Paul prays for us. Oh, I pray that you would have the love of Christ. I pray that you would have, have strength. That Christ would dwell in you so that you would understand what he's doing. And understand who you are. That's our prayer. This unity is not easily come by. But we are to pursue it eagerly. It's central to our responsibility as a church. Again, our unity testifies to the reconciling power of the cross. Our unity testifies to the, to the summation of all history. And our unit, unity testifies to the heavenly realms. 
the wisdom of God. Did you know you're on display right this morning? You're on display even this morning in the heavenly realms. You're on display. That's what he's saying. And your disunity is distorting the picture of what God has done in his son Christ. Now I'm going to go really quickly the last couple points, okay? We've seen that the people of God are one. This is what it's telling us. The people of God are one, both Jew and Gentile, made one in Christ. We also see how the people of God are formed. How does he form his people? The people of God are formed by believing his word. How does God form his people? How does God make a people? Those who respond to his word in faith are his people. Look what the text says. So what Paul says there in verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. He calls the word they hear, the word of truth. A couple of really quick observations about that, that statement, word of truth. First of all, this implies that the word is proclaimed. Why? Because they hear it. The word is meant to be proclaimed. The word is proclaimed for them to hear, and it dares to suggest that there is truth. There is truth. We live in an age where truth is relative, right? Your truth, my truth, everybody's truth, but according to what Paul says, there is a word of truth. You know what the truth is? It is the gospel of your salvation. He gives a clarifying statement as to what this word of truth is. It is the good news of salvation. Salvation from what? Good news of salvation from what? Well, chapter 2 tells us. Again, I'm going to fly. Listen carefully. The good news begins with the realization that you and I are spiritually dead. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the course of this world, following the very enemy of God is what it says. We have actually given ourselves to the one who opposes God, the one who seeks to rival God's place. We are complicit with him. And in this state, we are not sons of God, but sons of disobedience, is what chapter 2 tells us. Living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and as a result, we are under the wrath of God, like the rest of mankind. This is what we need to be saved from. The wrath of God. Our deadness in trespasses and sins. And the slavery we have given ourselves over as we serve the one who opposes God. Now that doesn't seem like good news when we consider what chapter 2 opens by telling us. This doesn't seem like good news and in fact it is not good news. But it serves the backdrop as the backdrop for what we see following It serves as the backdrop for the goodness of God. Did you know, there's a lot of people that talk about the goodness of God. We cannot see the goodness of God. We cannot truly see the goodness of the good news until we see our sin and our hopeless state. God is rich in mercy, chapter 2 goes on to say. God is a God of great love. Because he has sovereignly decided to make a people for himself from those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Who are God's people? God's people are those who 
have been joined to Christ by faith. They have received the word of Christ, the word regarding Christ, the gospel of their salvation, and they have been joined by faith to this message. But who were they? They were dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the children of disobedience, the sons of disobedience. That is who we are. But he takes, he takes the dead. He takes the dead. He takes his enemies. And it's from his enemies that he forms a people. And this is to highlight his great love and his richness of mercy. He takes those who were following the course of the world and following his enemy and he makes a people out of them. And how has he done that? He has done this by putting forth his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was put forth by God the Father to make atonement for the children of wrath. Jesus has bore the wrath of God meant for those who are in disobedience. He has died for sin. He has died for those who were dead in sin. Not only did he die for those who are dead in sin, he was made alive for them as well. You see, there is no way out of death for us. There is no way to to have victory over death. So Jesus made a way by his own death and resurrection from the dead. He has been made alive and he has been raised from death to die no more. But how does this death and resurrection affect me? Here's the truth. We are joined to the death and resurrection of Christ by faith, by believing upon him, hoping in him. This is what Paul says. We who are the first to hope in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You may be here this morning and you, you cannot with assurance and security say, I belong to the people of God. Well, here, here it is very simply. The message is clear. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. You, you, you are living out, just living in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind doing as it pleases you to do. And because of this, you are under the wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, great in love, has put forth His Son to take the judgment you deserve for you, to die in your place, and to be raised in your place. So well, how, how can Christ's work, his death and resurrection, be made mine? By faith. Believe. Trust. Put your hope upon it. And he promises that he will save you. You are joined. You can be joined with Christ by faith. His life can be yours. His death can be yours. His resurrection can be yours. Truly, I don't fear death as a believer in Christ. We don't fear death as believers in Christ. Why? Because he has already died and was raised. 
He has already passed through death. There is no fear in death for those who are in Christ. Now, isn't this amazing in the middle of this sentence? Isn't this amazing here in the middle of this sentence, this, this sentence that talks about God the Father's sovereign power and salvation, we have the clear teaching of human responsibility. Do you see that? When you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So here you have human responsibility. You and I are responsible for what we hear regarding the word of the truth, the gospel of salvation. Everybody that just heard that explanation of the gospel, you are responsible now for that. You have a responsibility. You have a response. What is your response to that truth? God sovereignly chooses those that are his, but we have a responsibility to believe what we have heard regarding the gospel of salvation. The people of God are one, and they are formed by faith in his word. And then look at what happens simultaneously with believing upon Christ. This is what it goes on to tell us. Look there in verse number 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Simultaneously, upon believing in Christ, he sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. What is meant by this seal? Well, the people of God are, here's what it's meant, here's what it means. The people of God are marked by the Holy Spirit. That's what is meant by sealed. When I, was, when I was younger, I had somebody teach on this passage, maybe I was a teenager, and they taught on this passage, and they said, the sealing is like when you're canning peaches. You know, when you're canning peaches, and you, you, you have the peaches there, and then you seal the lid, and later on, you open up the peaches, and you can redeem the peaches that you've sealed. Well, that kind of fits, but that's not really the idea. It fits, it fits with the future redemption, but it's not really the idea. Now I'm just hungry for peaches, by the way. Everybody's like, man, lunch sounds good right now. I wish he would finish. That's not really what's meant. What's meant by this, the ceiling, is a mark. Right? You would have heated wax, and you would place upon that some seal, maybe a ring that you would imprint upon that wax and it would mark that document it would mark that person as belonging to you it would have your authority your authentication your ownership upon it The seal here means simply to identify as one's own possession. Upon belief in the gospel, upon believing in Christ, God puts his mark upon you. And what is that mark? We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God gives the Spirit to his people as the seal or mark of identification. He is saying, this one is mine. I have redeemed this one. I have joined them with Christ and my seal is upon them. 
my Holy Spirit. This may sound crass, but it is a branding. It is a mark of ownership, of possession. And I've got to say, I am gladly, I will gladly receive the branding of God and His Holy Spirit. Those who have turned from their sin and believed upon Jesus for salvation have been branded as His own possession by His Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what was promised. That's what it's referring to when it says the promised Holy Spirit. Who was the Holy Spirit promised to? Who was the Holy Spirit promised to in the Old Testament? It was promised to Israel. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 36. Therefore, he says to Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate my holiness of my great name, the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, inheritance. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a pliable, a teachable heart is what he's saying. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's the promised Holy Spirit. Let's refer back to point number one. You say, well, that that is just for Israel. Oh, no, no, no. He has made of two, one. That promise is now ours. That promise is ours. We have received a new heart. We have been recipients of his spirit. He has given us a heart of flesh. And he has put his spirit within us, marking us off as his people for his own glory, for his own holy name. We are marked off as his. And we will dwell with him and be his people and he will be our God. Amen. Isn't that amazing? He has promised to give his spirit to those who are his people. And that is us. We have his spirit. We are the people marked by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, that means that we are not the same as we used to be. We used to follow the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, living the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But now he has made us alive in Christ and he has given us his spirit, his holy spirit. There has been a transformation and there continues to be a transformation in our lives. The Spirit is working to make us holy. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What? To be, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. That is what he's accomplishing. 
It is the Holy Spirit, after all. A good contrast to Ephesians 2 and what we were. And then we see that the giving of the Holy Spirit, it goes on to say, look at it there, the giving of the Holy Spirit, it marks us, and this giving of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now there again, he's he's talking about our inheritance again. He was talking Jew and Gentile, now he's saying we have it together. It is a guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. How do I know that the inheritance is mine and that I will see the redemption of that inheritance? Because he's given you the Holy Spirit. He's made the down payment. Now we understand this. If I, if I put in earnest on a house, it is my, is my good faith. I am, going to, I am going to pay what is required. I'm going to take and pay what is asked, the full, the full payment. And this is what God has done. He has given his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit serves as a down payment, as an earnest for our inheritance. The Holy Spirit's work in our lives to transform us is the assurance that we will experience full redemption. And this is exactly what the text says. Now, notice. I'm almost done. Notice, notice there. Verse 13, verse 14 rather, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Now in, in the original, here's actually what it's saying. And I think the translators are trying to help you out here, but, but here's, and I, I think the King James actually, the King James, believe it or not, has the best translation. Here's what the King James says. The Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The NASB says, who is the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So it is not truly us who are acquiring possession of inheritance, but it is God who is acquiring possession, redeeming the possession of his inheritance. Here we see the wonderful truth that we are his inheritance as his people. We are his possession. We belong to him. And he has given the Holy Spirit as an earnest, as a down payment, indicating that he means to make good. He has redeemed us. How has he purchased us? Through the blood of Jesus. And he will take fully and finally what he has bought. God has bought his people by the blood of his son. He has redeemed us. The Holy Spirit has given to us as a guarantee of the day coming when the Father will take full possession of what he has bought. Our redemption will be fully realized and we will dwell forever with God to the praise of his glory. And that is what our inheritance is. Our inheritance is a full realization of that redemption. And in that full realization of our redemption, he is taking fully and finally what he has purchased by the blood of his son. This is our future. Now, you say, that's all fantastic. But you know what? I just need help getting through this week. We started potty training my son this last week. 
And I can, I can, in a way, sympathize with young parents who are potty training. They say, you know, all this in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, all this is great, Pastor Paul, but I need to know how to potty train my son. I need to know. How could I just get through this week with the details and the, the mundane thing? These, you know, these are wonderful truths, but I need help tomorrow. Can I, just, can I just suggest to you that the cosmic reality, the, the transcendent reality of these truths are no good if they don't speak to the mundane details of your life? Does, does this passage give hope to the young mom who's potty training her son? They should. The, the man who is struggling with his boss and his work, just trying to figure out how to make another week at a job that he hates. Does this speak to that man? It absolutely does. Because the re- reality, the truths of this passage should be the framework from which we operate Should there be a difference in how a young Christian mom potty trains her son? Absolutely. She realizes, first of all, her hope is not in whether he ever learns how to use the restroom or not. My hope is in something else. I don't have to respond in anger. I don't have to respond in hopelessness and despair. I don't have to live in discontentment. Because I can step back and I can see all that God is doing and all that God is doing. And I know what God is doing in me. By his Holy Spirit, he's transforming me. And that's what I want. More than I want a job that's fulfilling. More than I want this person to do what I think they should do. I want God to work in me. You see, if, if you don't grasp a hold of these truths. I, I, I brought up the potty training thing because, frankly, as a pastor, I, I am so burdened. People ask all kinds of questions that they think are really urgent questions. They are on a level. But, but what we need, what we truly need, is to see reality, what's true. And out of that, from that then, work in the everyday mundane details of our life. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 will anchor you. It will change you. It will change the way you look at your life and give you hope even in the most hopeless of moments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you have given us here in your word. I pray that we would meditate on it, memorize it, and that it would anchor us as we approach the circumstances of our life that seem overwhelming in the moment paralyzing, distracting, hopeless, despairing. As we approach these details of our life, we can only do so in a way that glorifies you when we hold on to the hope that you've given us and your purpose which you've set forth in Christ for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. I pray that you would renew our purpose that you would renew our hope 
even in circumstances that are overwhelming, that we would see what you are doing to make a people for your glory in your Son by your Spirit. I pray that these would transform our thinking. And I pray that as we join together as the church, as we gather together, our unity, the fellowship that we have with one another would be of first importance for us. That we would pursue unity. When there is conflict, when there is division, we would not allow it to remain, but we would pursue reconciliation. Because you have joined us together in Christ. We pray that you would work your word into our hearts and minds. Change us. We pray by your spirit, for your glory. Amen.